Good morning, podcasters, from a cold, crisp Dorset, where damp grey skies and howling winds have given way to frosty blue skies and sunshine. I'm hoping we can cast some cool, crisp light on your day, so let's start with one of our classic categories this morning. Before I jump into that, let me just uh, welcome uh, the panel. Uh, as ever, you have my co-host, Kerry. Good morning, Kerry. Morning, Behind the Dan. glass, Annabelle Davis, making it all come together. We're getting away from Annabelle. And our guest speaker this morning, Georgia Nixon from our banking litigation team. And I believe, Georgia, you're kicking us off this morning with some contractual construction uh, case, a quick overview um, of a case addressing the preferred interpretation of uh, a term in an exclusion clause. Is that right? Yes, thank you, John. Now, the first case is Primus International Holding and Triumph Controls, which confirm that the ordinary legal meaning of a particular term in a contract will be preferred to an unusual technical or non-legal meaning. So here, the relevant clause is in a case that excluded liability for lost goodwill. And the Court of Appeal found that the ordinary meaning of goodwill was applicable, this being the good name, business reputation and connection of business. The interesting point is that the court rejected the technical accounting definition advanced by the defendants, namely, now hold your breath for this, an intangible asset recorded when a company acquires another company and the purchase price is greater than the sum of the fair value of the identifiable tangible and intangible assets acquired and the liabilities that were assumed. That old chestnut. (laughs) Well, I can definitely see why the court preferred the ordinary meaning. Um, so, Georgia, what would you say is the key read across for a financial services context? The case is useful in highlighting the importance of careful drafting, where the contract at hand refers to a financial term of art or jargon. And there can be a lot of jargon in finance contracts. Of course, we're used to seeing lengthy pages of definitions. So the general approach in our sector is to make sure terms are defined. But some can th- fall through the net, especially for words where you might think the meaning is obvious in the sector. So the decision is a warning that the court could give a term its non-technical or non-legal meaning if the term in question is not clearly defined with clarity. So if in doubt, define a term that you want to have a meaning that is different to the the ordinary meaning. Is that that the key point, Georgia? That's right, John. Excellent. Well, thank you for that um, overview. And as ever, podcasters, we have uh, a blog post uh, on this decision. And the link's in the show notes. Thank you, Georgia. All right, um, I'm up next. Um, We've got a few mis-selling cases to unpack, starting off with a deep dive into uh, the recent decision of BNPP and TRM for all things ISDA. Uh, So this is the long-running and cross-jurisdictional dispute between BNPP and TRM, which, just to remind you all, is an Italian public-private partnership. And the reason I've chosen uh, this decision for the deep dive is because of the abundance of detailed and very helpful commentary on key provisions of the uh, ISDA Master Agreement, with which most of our banking podcasters will be familiar. I I have to say, though, it's got some pretty useful guidance on, uh, in particular, the non-reliance clause. But before addressing the key takeaways, let me give you some background. So the case uh, concerned a 2008 loan to TRM, which was provided by a syndicate of banks led by BNPP, the claimant bank. And this loan had a number of associated hedging arrangements, which were governed by the ISDA Master Agreement uh, 1992 version. TRM's position uh, was that the bank negligently advised it to enter into these hedging arrangements. 
Uh, and so the bank issued proceedings in the English High Court seeking various negative declarations of non-liability. In other words, the bank took the initiative um, to bring the proceedings. And in terms of the outcome, the commercial court found in favour of the bank, granting the majority of the declarations sought, which for the most part tracked various provisions of the ISDA. Interesting, John. So can you um, can you drill down into the details of some of those declarations for us? Uh, yeah, sure thing, Kerry. And I should add uh, at this point, um, on a, a live case that I've got, we actually got hold of the particulars uh, in the uh, BMPP and TRM uh, matter, and they are very fulsome and very, very useful and can be uh, carried across uh, into um, other cases where this sort of thing is being run. But anyway, um, the... The first declaration, I think, to highlight is the one that tracked the non-reliance provisions uh, of the ISDA. Now, I know you love the detail, John, so I'm sure you'd be happy to share with us which specific part of the master agreement that was. I'd be absolutely delighted to, Kerry. Thank you very much. Uh, well, for those uh, uh, with an eye at the detail, I, I'm talking here about Part uh, 5D1 of the schedule to the ISDA master agreement. In a nutshell, BMPP was looking for a declaration that TRM had made its own independent decision to enter into the hedging transaction. And reassuringly for the bank, uh, the court was swift uh, to grant that declaration. But the bank also sought a further declaration to the effect that the non-reliance provisions in the ESTA gave rise to a contractual estoppel. Again, many of the podcasters listening will be familiar with that. But by that, I mean that TRM was stopped by the ISDA Master Agreement from arguing that it had relied on any representations given by BMPP as investment advice or a recommendation to enter into the hedging transaction. So a sort of belt and braces approach by the bank there. Precisely. And the contractual estoppel declaration gave the court a bit more pause for thought although it went on to grant that declaration as well. But the court had some interesting things to say on the contractual estoppel argument. Uh, in particular, it rejected TRM's argument that the non-reliance on representation provisions had to be UCTA reasonable. You'll remember that we discussed this at length, I think it was the summer before last, uh, where there was a, um, a decision that, that raised this. I've seen this, come, this issue come up on a number of mis-selling cases. It seems to be a pretty hot topic in these cases. Yeah, and I, I think it's fair to say, George, that it has vexed the courts repeatedly. Uh, the argument comes up in the context of misrepresentation claims and generally centres on whether or not non-reliance on representation clauses are exclusion clauses. Uh, claimants typically argue that uh, they are exclusion clauses because if the clause excludes liability for misrepresentation, the Misrepresentation Act 1967 says that they must be UCTA reasonable. And on the flip side, obviously, the bank argues that non-reliance clauses are not exclusion clauses, uh, so they therefore uh, avoid the gaze of UCTA. Uh, and on this view, non-reliance clauses are said to prevent liability for arising in the first place by setting out an allocation of risk uh, of the parties at the outset, rather than, on the other hand, excluding liability per se. Presumably, in most cases, the non-reliance clause in question would be up to reasonable anyway. Well, you'd hope so, uh, yes. But um, but seriously, uh, if there's an expressed requirement for the clause to be reasonable, it just means another hoop uh, to jump through from the bank's perspective and another argument in the, uh, claimant, uh, the claimant's armoury. But anyway, getting back to the case, the court found in favour of the bank and held that the uh, uh, UCTA didn't bite on the non-reliance clause in the context uh, of a misrepresentation claim. 
Yeah, Jen, I found it interesting that First Tower, which I think is uh, the case you were alluding to a couple of summers ago, that First Tower wasn't cited on this particular aspect of the judgment, although interestingly it was mentioned elsewhere. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Kerry. I found that interesting as well. Uh, and there are hints in the judgment that this argument wasn't fully fleshed out before the court. But for those podcasters who are not familiar with First Tower, this was a Court of Appeal decision from, I think it was summer 2018, which essentially said the opposite to the current case, um, that the, these sorts of clauses must be up to reasonable if the effect of the clause is to exclude liability for misrepresentation. But look, in any event, it's an interesting contrast which might be explained by the fact that First Towers looked at non-reliance in a very different context. Uh, that decision considered the effects of an exclusion clause in a commercial lease where there had been uh, misrepresentations about as- asbestos on site. Um, the court in BMP and TRM specifically commented that First Tower was a very different type of case, which was not purporting to consider the effect of representations made in the financial services context. And you can see the very different context where you're dealing with something as dangerous as asbestos. Uh, But I'd uh, also recommend this judgment for giving some useful commentary on um, the ISDA entire agreement clause and some general guidance on applications for negative declaratory relief, in particular where um, you're trying to um, either establish jurisdiction or just get the argument dealt with very quickly. Um, And look, I I could go on about this uh, very helpful case, but um, as ever, I'll direct you to our show show notes um, for our blog post. And um, George, I better hand over to you for the next mis-selling case. Thanks, John. I actually think you've missold this next update to our podcasters, as I have not one but two cases to discuss. Now, the first one is Boise and Nat West, and the second is Elite Properties and BDO. These two cases weren't related, but I'm taking them together as they both go to the same point. And that's this. In both cases, the court was willing to deal with opportunistic claims alleging fraud against the bank on a strikeout or summary judgment basis. I won't go into the detail of the facts, although if you're interested in them, please see the blog post linked in our show notes. Thanks, George. I think it's really interesting because traditionally these types of cases have been much less amenable to strike out or summary determination. Yeah, exactly, Kerry. And the court was cautious to say that it would only be prepared to do so in an appropriate case. So do these decisions shed any light on what might be deemed an appropriate case? And also, if I recall correctly, Elite Properties has been on the go for years. Indeed, that's right, John. Uh, So as you know, cases involving fraud must meet a high bar in terms of their pleadings. So an appropriate case may be where the claims are underdeveloped. Such cases may also be struck out on the basis of limitation if there's a clear and compelling case that the claimants had requisite knowledge to bring claims prior to the expiry of the relevant limitation period, or for abuse of process if the case attempts to run collateral attack on previous court findings. Although, John, I'd just say, uh, you're right, Elite's been going on for years. It's a bit like whack-a-mole. Um, all the previous judgments that we have followed have all been against the bank, um, and now this claim is against the accountants. So um, we'll see who they try and see next. Yeah, indeed. Watch this space. Thank you, Kerry, and thank you, Georgia, for the very succinct summary of those two cases. And Kerry, um, it's a podcast. Uh, it's a month on, so it must be time for another Quinn's Care Duty. Uh, yeah, indeed, John. Uh, one of my absolute favourite hot topics. Um, so I'm going to kick this uh, Quinsker section off with Hamlin and World First. And in this case, the High Court considered a Quinsker claim against a payment services provider, refusing to strike it out. 
Pausing there for a second, Kerry. Uh, I know we start every Quinn's Care Summary like this, but could you just give our podcasters a quick rundown on what the duty actually involves? Sorry. Uh, yes, great idea, John. Um, so the Quince Care duty, named after the case in which it was first established, Barclays Bank and Quince Care, arises where a bank or deposit holding financial institution must refrain from processing a payment mandate by an authorised signatory of its customer for as long as the bank is put on inquiry. And this refers to when the bank has reasonable grounds for believing that the instruction is an attempt to misappropriate funds from the customer. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kerry, but uh, the decision you're about to talk about was the first decision to follow the Supreme Court's ruling in Singularis. Yes, indeed, John, you're correct. Um, And our dedicated listeners might recall us discussing this case back in April. Uh, For anyone interested in a quick recap of the Singularis judgment, then episode 16 of the podcast will be linked to in the show notes. And of course, as ever, there's a blog post on that one too. So turning to the facts of the present case, this decision is interesting because it concerns a novel factual scenario not previously analysed by the court in the Quince Care context. Here, the PSP's customer was a shell company without any directors, which had been hijacked by fraudulent individuals and used for the purposes of a fraud. The fraud involved getting investors to transfer money into the shell company's account with the PSP, which was then, and that money was then transferred out, apparently on instructions from the shell company. And of course, uh, the money was never seen again. The Quince Care claim was brought by the investors, but this was technically on behalf of the shell company for some rather complicated reasons that I won't, won't go into. So against the PSP. So the focus here was on the merits of the Shell Company's Quince Care claim against the PM- PSP. So this really was unexplored territory that the court had to consider. And even in these really extreme circumstances, the court found that a Quince Care claim was realistically arguable. Following Singularis, the court emphasised that the Quince Care duty is owed to the company and not to those in control of it. And it therefore held that the shell company itself could be a victim of the fraud. So, Carrie, even though the fraudsters were controlling the shell company, the court didn't view the company as being complicit in the fraud or knowing about it? Precisely, Georgia. So this all boils down to the question of attribution of knowledge. And here the court refused to attribute the knowledge of the fraudsters to the shell company. There seems to have been a noticeable creep in the scope of Quinn's care duty recently. Yeah, definitely, Georgia. So if you think back to the beginning in Barclays Bank and Quince Care, the duty was considered in the context of a current account. Uh, since then, it's been extended to depository accounts, investment banks, and now payment services providers. I wonder what's next. And do we have a blog post on the decision? Uh, yeah, we do. There's a link, as always, in the show notes. So next in the land of Quince Care is Stanford International Bank and HSBC. And in this case, the High Court refused to strike out uh, Quince Care duty, Um, this time in relation to a claim brought by the liquidators of Ponzi scheme against a correspondent bank that operated its accounts, not knowing that the scheme was a fraud. Ah, the the Ponzi scheme set up by that dastardly cricket-loving Alan Stanford. Is that right? Yeah, that's the one, John. 
Um, so as I said, the claim is brought by the liquidators of Stanford's Ponzi scheme company. And these proceedings are one of many around the globe. So the background facts of this one are pretty fascinating, but sadly we do not have time really to get into the weeds of them here. I will give you, however, a very quick snapshot. So the bank's argument was really quite clever. The bank said that it, even if the payments were made in breach of its quince care duty, those sums went to genuine investors who had invested in the Ponzi scheme. You can see how this contrasts with the usual quince care scenario where the person authorizing the payment mandate is often the person who then makes off with the money, as in the previous case that we just described. So the context here is really quite different. The bank said that the claimant customer, the insolvent Ponzi scheme, actually suffered no loss because the monies paid out to investors reduced the Ponzi scheme's liabilities to those investors. So the net asset position of the Ponzi scheme remained the same. The High Court's answer was to refuse the strikeout application, saying that it was arguable that a loss had been suffered. The court focused on the fact that the Ponzi scheme was hopelessly and irredeemably insolvent and so did not need to give credit for the fact that it had been saved to liabilities by payments out to investors. But taking a step back, the key point for in-house lawyers really is that this is yet another quince care duty claim progressing through the courts. And there continues to be a noticeable uptick both in judgments and in cases we're tracking, which include claims of this type. Very interesting, Carrie. Am I correct in thinking there's an upcoming appeal in relation to this judgment? Yes, permission to appeal to the Court of Appeal has been granted. The appeal is due to be heard um, by the 1st of November next year, so we'll be sure to keep you all updated. And of course, we have a blog post, uh, which is linked to in the show notes. Thank you very much, Kerry. Um, very comprehensive indeed, if I may say. Um, and to round off this edition of the POS podcast, I'm going to hand over to Georgia uh, to talk us through a recent update on legal privilege. Good luck with the pronunciation of this case name, Georgia. Thank you, John. I'm going to need it. Uh, the final case is PJSC Tatneft and Bogoliabov. Not bad. In the case, the Commercial Court confirmed that legal advice privilege under English law applies to advice from foreign lawyers and significantly that there's no need for the court to inquire into the qualifications of the foreign lawyer in order for this to apply. And Georgia, could you, could you just remind our podcasters of the position before this case? Well, it's long been established that legal advice privilege under English law applies to advice from foreign lawyers, so that such advice does not have to be disclosed in litigation before English courts. However, it wasn't clear whether there was any particular local standard of qualification or professional regulation that a foreign lawyer must meet for example, admission to a local bar, in order for their advice to benefit from the protection of this privilege. Yeah, I know that this uncertainty has been problematic for foreign lawyers in jurisdictions where admission to the local bar is not a prerequisite for legal practice. It certainly has. Luckily, the courts held that communications with the claimant's Russian in-house lawyers were privileged as a matter of English law, and that there was no need for the court to inquire into the applicable systems of regulation or professional standards under Russian law. But there were some restrictions to this, correct? Yes, that's right. The lawyer has to be acting in their professional capacity in connection with the provision of legal advice. And I thought the guidance for in-house lawyer was particularly helpful in this case and um, will be very relevant for our audience, I would have thought, many of whom are um, in-house lawyers at banks. 
Um, yes, John, agreed. Usefully, the judge expressly encompassed in-house lawyers within the remit of foreign lawyers. I'll finish off by directing our podcasters to a blog post for more information, the link of which, as always, is in the show notes. Thank you very much, Georgia. And look, that rounds off our podcast for uh, November. Um, I think you'd agree, podcasters, COVID notwithstanding, um, we've had uh, a very fertile uh, field uh, this month, uh, legal privilege, contractual construction, Quinscare, um, and of course, ISDA. Uh, as ever, please do contact us with any comments or questions, keep them coming. Um, but for now, thank you very much to our guest speaker, uh, Georgia, um, for uh, your input this month. Thank you, um, uh, Kerry, my co-host, um, as ever. And thank you very much, Annabelle, um, behind the glass for making it all happen. Until we speak again next month, podcasters, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>